Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hello, and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with this, and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. All right, real quick before we get started on the show, I'm just going to talk about Treeline Academy. You've heard me say it. I can't even tell you how many times. Um, Mark Livesey is treelineacademy.net. That's treelineacademy.net. Sign up. Use the promo code PC2020. Save yourself 20 bucks. Can't say it enough. It's awesome. Amazing. Most comprehensive e-scouting course out there. Check it out for yourself. Sign up. Use promo code PC2020. And now let's get to the show. All right, so I'm sitting here, and I am talking to Michael Baker. And, uh, Michael, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure, yeah. Uh, as you said, my name is Michael Baker. I'm a forager in the Chicago suburbs of Illinois. I go by the moniker edible underscore Illinois online. And yeah, that's the short and skinny. <laughs> so I got to ask you, though, like, where did it all begin? What was the one thing that made you want to start foraging? Was it something at a young age? Was it something later on in life that sparked an interest? What kind of made you want to go down that path? Oh, man. Yeah, there's there's a couple key figures, um, you know, really small figures that I, I don't even know, remember their name, but they planted the seed at a young age by teaching me that there's like really cool flavors to be found just sitting underneath the trees in your backyard. Um, so, you know, people at summer camps way back in the day, but say like my personal focus, I, like really got awakened probably with morel mushrooms, um, just because that's kind of the hot, the hot, um, foraging thing down in central Illinois where I grew up. And it's, uh, you know, Illinois is kind of 
morel mecca like it's a really really awesome place to find this like excellent gourmet mushroom so um about six years ago i tried to started trying to find this morel um up here in chicago um and i never really you know you come home empty-handed the first couple times you go about it if you don't have somebody already showing you where to go um where they already know that they grow so um you know you just kind of start getting inspired to well what else can i find out there um so i don't come home empty-handed every time you know i i was seeing all these other mushrooms out there you know like a pheasant back like it smells good is this edible and then it turns out it is well there's so much other stuff that i could be finding on the journey towards the real prize the morel mushroom but uh yeah that's kind of how it started it's just because i was desperate Coming home empty-handed too many times. <laughs> you know, I think that that plays a hand in more than just uh, foraging wild edibles as well. I think a lot of times we get we get lost in that while we're hunting or or doing other things like that. And I can't tell you how many times when I first started hunting public land that I would come home empty-handed, and my wife would be like, "Well, did you even see anything?" And I was like, "No." And so it got so discouraging. I was like, man, there's got to be something else I could be doing out there as well. And it, I mean, it was kind of instilled in me already, like that innate desire to find out how much food is actually all around us. And mm-hmm. it just kind of fueled my fire and the quest for it even further. And that's when I really started getting into, okay, what else in the fall? And then hen of the woods mushrooms, right? So then I got into oh, yeah. finding hen of the woods. And now one of my spots, which is actually a really great deer spot but it also has some really large mature oaks um like old growth oaks and uh i always know if i swing by that spot the right time of year i'm gonna find those or i'm gonna come home with the deer it's whatever i want to do that day so that that makes it worth the journey out there to go to that place and uh have that experience and that that option in your pocket as well as you know if if you if you end up blowing a shot on a deer or making a wrong move, at least you can bring home some mushrooms. So that's always a good feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And it takes that kind of familiarity with place, you know, like really being intimate with some surroundings and like, you know, it, it, you don't, you didn't, you didn't get to know that forest in like two weeks, you know, <laughs> it's because you've been going there for years, right? Well, actually it was the, the second year I was there. Um, that I actually started yeah. looking for Hen of the Woods and I was like, oh, this is a good spot. I know it is. Look at all these trees. And so I remembered from the previous year what I always try and make notation and I'm real bad about keeping mm-hmm. a journal and I know I should do it, especially from a foraging aspect, time of year, you know, uh, temperatures, average rainfall, all those sorts of things. But they not only play into like the hunting aspect of that, to where like what times you're seeing the deer doing that, but the foraging aspect. And if you tied those two together, my goodness, you would have something that would be truly amazing to look back on and go, okay, this time of year right here, you know, it correlates to this. And not only could you find like rutting patterns, animals, but also different plant life that's coming to life at the same time too. So it's, it's one of those things that I really, really need to focus on and I don't, but um, that's, that's something. Do you keep a journal? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, vaguely, um, not, no, I mean, gosh, no, I'm going to go ahead and go with the answer. No, <laughs> <laughs> I have a journal that I've written in sometimes, but do I believe in it? Uh, do I, do I believe I've done it enough to claim that kind of, I, you know, I, I aspired a, a, as well to, um, keep a journal well and have it well, you know, well informed and everything. But no, I, I, I don't write in it as much as I should. I kind of rely on technology a little bit more. Um, honestly, cause I was just thinking about how I rely on, uh, like my, my photos. I, I take, I constantly take pictures, um, whenever we're going, whenever I'm walking around outside. So whenever I have the date and location tag all in digital data, and it's kind of like all stored, uh, in calendar format already, you know, I, I get these reminders like, Oh, this day last year, this day, two years ago. And it's kind of just like already feeding it to me. So it's, um, kind of defeating my own uh, ambitions to own a journal whenever it's, you know, just made so easy for me. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's the same thing I do. I do with like base map for when I'm hunting, I do the same thing. I drop like, you can drop a pin, but it's called a, mm-hmm. a smart marker. Well, so if you have access to like cellular data, it'll give you the weather, wind direction and everything else along with it. So it'll give you the rainfall, temperature, all that kind of stuff for that day and so yeah I, wow i really rely on that kind of stuff and it's good in a sense right because at least i'm doing more than i would if i did nothing but at the same time i'm solely relying on technology that that isn't always as accurate or if i don't play it right that's one thing i need to work on i think is actually start journaling more and keeping track of it for sure yeah, man, I, I'm right there with you with that that goal. Uh, I, I do believe that like there's something to, to be said about the uh, the motor mechanics of like actually writing something and how it ins- imprints on your memory. You know, it's it's different. It's it's different than just being fed to you by a blue light. Yeah, for sure. So um, one of the things we we went for a walk today and you I remember you took a picture and uh so you could look it up and do more research later what was that you took a picture of like a cocoon or something yeah so that ended up being a uh um uh praying mantis wasps uh not a praying mantis sack uh i'm pretty sure it was like a carolina mantis which is like you know considered native but they're you know that's kind of what native even means is kind of weird i still so. think they're good whether they're not native or invasive or not i still in my opinion yeah. i kind of think a praying mantis is a good thing but it's, it's help, debatable keeper, you know, of a, keeper of a garden for sure yeah i it depends on how big they get you know <laughs> it's like whenever they're small and they're only capable of eating certain things right then they're great but these some of these chinese mantises um they get uh, they can eat birds uh, and they're, they're, they're kind of like decimating bee populations. So it's something kind of to be a little bit wary of, but, uh, I mean, so it's commercial agriculture. I know I just opened what, up a can of know, worms there, but <laughs> I know I, but exactly. It's like, what isn't, you know, it's, yeah. it's the same. It's what's to be said about like foraging on the side of the road, you know, like how many chemicals are you going to see on that plant compared to what's being sprayed to make sure no plant no bugs get to it at all you know there's there's a much longer list on the agricultural side i can almost assure anybody yeah for sure and it's and what you find on the side of the road is much more easy to wash off yes for sure 
So um, one of the things that you you pointed out or notated, which is pretty interesting, especially in Illinois, like this time of year, what's really fun to look for is you call them your spring. What was the word? Ephemerals? Oh, yeah. Ephemeral. Ephemerals. Yeah, which is kind of, you know, a synonym for temporary or, you know. So let's talk about spring, spring ephemerals a little bit yeah. and kind of okay. go into, you know, what's happening this time of year, what's out there, um, you know, the many uses and all that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, sure. It's we're recording on April 10th. So this is, you know, very early in the springtime for uh, the Chicago area. Um, temperatures are just barely getting up to 60 degrees right now. Um, but with the lack of canopy in the trees, uh, that offers an opportunity for like a lot of sunlight to reach the forest floor and, and these like really, uh, robust ecosystems that we have in the Chicago forest preserve areas, uh, that uh, we get a lot of wildflowers that are referred to as spring ephemerals, things like. Um, cutleaf toothwort, which is in the mustard family, and then we have the uh, spring beauties, which are you know just tiny little juicy. Uh, they're almost like succulent-ish. Um, and then of course everybody knows ramps. Uh, there's also um, I've spotted some trout lilies today too. So we'll we'll go through a few of those. Um, but starting off with like, you know, you tasted some cutleaf toothwort. Um, and that was, you know, that's, that's an, that's an alive flavor right there. It's so yes. horseradishy. It's like, it's the most horseradish thing I've ever tasted outside of horseradish. I got to say, I'm kind of fond of it now and I am going to seek it out and try and find some of my own little places that it grows all over the place like that. Cause that was something interesting. And it kind of makes me think like, what can you do with that? How can you incorporate those flavors into something and, you know, turn it into a dish that would that it would accompany well has there been anything that you've cooked with it or anything like that with the cut leaf toothwort honestly mostly i've just kind of used it as a, a zap in fresh salads like it's really exciting to just kind of get that like that hotness um whenever you just kind of like just start because you can't really smell it as long as the leaf stays whole um it's got this interesting compound in it that comes from all things that like uh, taste like horseradish. It's called isothiocyanate, um, and it, it gets oxidized by air and saliva. So whenever you break the leaf, that's the only time you're going to smell it. Or if you chew on it, that's whenever it starts this chemical um, reaction process where it creates this like hot horseradishiness. That's what we were talking um, about earlier. The oxo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of, that explains also though, why when you breathe in through your nose while eating horseradish, that the flavor yeah. intensifies and it gets hotter is mm -hmm. because you're yeah. actually oxidizing it by pulling that air in across it, which is mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah, direct chemical reaction. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So, um, you, you throw it on salads. What I found interesting, though, is when eating it, it wasn't even necessarily the leaves that had the most flavor. It was actually like the stem of the plant itself it seemed like it contained more of that uh, compound. Yeah, definitely. That could be um, maybe due to the age. I've definitely had uh, I've definitely chewed on the leaf sometimes in previous years where it's been hot on the leaf. And these are really young, so it's probably more concentrated in the stem. And then as the flowers bloom more frequently, 
it'll probably be the whole plant but yeah the stem was definitely like a pow yeah it was good it was good it makes me think that i need to try and come up with something for that and you know what i'm sure alan burgo or somebody like that has already came up with a million ways to use it and maybe i'll just have to look and do a little research see what he's already come up with but yeah no doubt <laughs> no sense of me having to put forth the effort to try and, no. try and come up with something <laughs> uh yeah for sure but um you you showed me probably it ha- it absolutely is i'm not even going to deny that the biggest ramp patch i've ever ever seen in my life that it's was a beaut that that is we'll keep that a secret where it's at but um it's beautiful it was amazing to see that many and then just as far as i could see really yeah no it really is an ocean um it's it's an incredible place and that was the first place i had ever found them and, you know and to just see them in such abundance it's kind of kind of makes you question some of the ethics uh, problems that people have with them sometimes but it's always a conditional thing like we talked about uh yeah, it's a, no, it's a beautiful, and it's not even that secret of a spot, you know. It's it's a, but, in the uh, wide, wide open, right, right wide in plain open. sight to where everybody yeah, can people see just it, walk but, right by it. But that that goes into the fact that you know most people aren't looking for that kind of thing, and most people who have the mindset that uh, you know, oh, don't eat that, don't pick that, you're going to poison yourself. What if you get the wrong thing? You know, all that kind of uh, stigma that comes along with foraging or or lack of knowledge of foraging right and that's why yeah continually trying to educate ourselves so kind of speaking of educating ourselves though um i mean how did you educate yourself as far as foraging goes was it like college courses uh foraging walks what was your like main source of information that really kind of was the catalyst that took you to the next level um books really uh, i'm kind of an avid book addict uh and reading uh sam thayer's works has always been a huge inspiration the uh, personal experience he brings into his writings is just un unrivaled and uh you know sometimes frankly poetic you know he's he's a really he's a really cool guy and i love always love reading his stuff um and so beyond that you know i'm i'm lucky to be in the footsteps of you know a lot a lot of really incredible content creators like um adam harrington and alan burgo um and you know even even people like daniel vitalis you know that's the, that are really creating kind of this momentum behind the wild food attitude yeah for sure no that's that's always good things i have a hard time retaining without actually physically practicing the stuff from books. So like I will sit and read books, you know, cover to cover and then put it on the shelf. And if I don't look at it again or pull it out, so I've kind of made a habit now, I'll leave them on my nightstand and just kind of flip through them sometimes before bed, just to try and re-imprint some of the stuff into my memory. But then, um, yeah, yeah. Oh my God, Luke! I I have books everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's that's that's you know that's kind of how it is. Is I have you know read read a book and then you're you're walking around and you see a plant and you think oh, I'm pretty sure I've seen that before. So you take a bunch of pictures of it from different angles and you know you consult a bunch of different sources, um, including the book that you think you saw it in or whatever. And 
Um, bada bing, bada boom. You've usually got you, you. You should usually be able to triangulate some sort of answer. Yeah. And then I like today as we were walking, I asked you if you used any apps and you told me you use an app. But at the same time, in the same sentence, you're like, yeah, but sometimes it doesn't always work. I, that just seems like super unreliable to me for like an AI app to do that and use that. I mean, have you, you had a lot of success with using apps for identifying things or is it more so been as like a second or third verification? Oh, definitely a second or third verification. I don't use it as a primary source. Um, I like having it as a visual catalog. Um, I personally use, I don't, I don't know if you want me to use the name. I use iNaturalist. Yeah, it doesn't um, matter which I, one. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty cool, I mean, I like that it um, makes the information available for everybody. Um, you know, I part of why I use it um, is... It, and and this is also why it's kind of a dangerous app uh, is is if it's used right, um, you can find other people's observations. So you can find any species you want on a map and go to those locations. So if you had ill intentions, you know, you could easily find salamanders or, uh, you know, and other endangered plant species or whatever, you know, and you could poach them potentially. So there's kind of a little bit of recent debate over like whether you should be tagging using these AI services at all, regardless of how reliable they are. Because like I did say earlier, it's like, yeah, they kind of they're kind of hit and miss. Um, you have to use your own discernment whenever you're trying to choose. It, it offers suggestions and then you have to figure out which one. And then, you know, that's where the human part comes in and you shouldn't just automatically boom it's the first suggestion this thing's always going to be right technology is never that good even like google maps this using satellites doesn't know how to get you from a to b the best way sometimes you know and so something taking a picture of a plant isn't going to be the perfect resource either yeah no that's... but i definitely i definitely use it as like a second or third verification just to kind of like back it up or um use it as you know enter it in a physical cat a visual catalog um because it is kind of a um i don't want to say like a social network but there are other users that can see the um identifications that you upload and agree or disagree hmm it's interesting. I don't think I ever used that one. I used something else and it was not it was not good. The one I used. Like I told you, I used used it and like you take a picture of Lamb's quarter and it told me something completely different and I'm like, Well, I already know that plant, so how much can I trust it with? And then I think I took a picture of like uh like narrow leaf plantain or I guess that'd be just regular plantain, not broadleaf, but it took a picture of plantain and it came up with something completely different than the plantain and it was like in gravel so it was the only plant there you know it wasn't like it was surrounded by other flora to where it would get confused with it and so i was like man i'm i'm not i deleted it never used it again yeah <laughs> they're not the best you'll get that a lot i've encountered that a lot and so it's like whenever i know what kind of plant it is and i'm just trying to boost get you know enter it in my catalog and get my numbers up I'm just uh, going to enter in what I know it is for sure. And hopefully that kind of helps the identification algorithm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So let's kind of talk about some of the other things we encountered uh, 
that were pretty cool or interesting that for this time of year yeah i mean while we were there we saw um spring beauties which are just um you know pretty common riverside or river valley which is you know most of where we you and i live um just kind of river plains and stuff like that um they're a very small succulent like flower um that ha- they usually have uh white or pink petals with um small stripes in them and they're they're rather small but yeah i mean we picked up a couple and chomped on them and they're they're juicy and vegetal and you know they don't really taste like much but they're <laughs> some of the first things that come up in the year and they're just so darn, darn pretty you know it's it's a good garnish for a salad you know all the things we uh saw today were kind of like you know just small vegetal stuff that you can mix together to create a complex dish nothing that's really too big to be served on its own except for the ramps those are impressive yes and beautiful and tasty and uh that compound butter i made is is going to be pretty good on either a smoked or a nicely seared ribeye i think oh i love that (laughs) definitely where i'm going with that one put it on right at the right at the last minute there while it's still on the coals my mouth's actually watering (laughs) (laughs) but uh so what are some other things like uh that you you actually uh would would have picked today to make like a salad or something um yeah the ever-present garlic mustard um was there too so that's you know pretty common plan everybody sees that has about a two-year life cycle um the second year uh plants send up a huge stock and you can harvest the seeds for um kind of like a another it's a it's it's in the mustard family it's called garlic mustard so the seeds are spicy, um, but the leaves themselves taste garlic mustardy. They're like garlicky. Um, I would have collected that too. The root also has a horseradishy taste. So that's another thing that we 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 encountered today that would have had a similar flavor profile of other things we were collecting. So definitely, garlic mustard would have been on our list um ramps because there were just so many i'm gonna have that on my list a couple times <laughs> um what else did we see i saw um a couple small aster leaves um so aster is a flowering plant that usually shows up in the summer <clears throat> but the leaves uh have this really strong really strong strong flavor um have you ever tasted goldenrod leaves at all um no i don't think i've ever tasted it no it's uh gosh it's almost like lick licorice uh it's kind of hard to like mugworty or so uh, like a sweet wormwoody that's, that's what i'm root? trying to think of like a or yeah sweet sicily root that tastes kind of licorice like that or yeah probably kind of like i haven't i haven't tasted that okay kind of just strong and pungent and almost medicinal yeah it tastes very anisey like a yeah 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 almost like you're like a shot of sambuca or whatever it is or the the ouzo uh the greek booze (laughs) that's got the licorice flavor to it oh i must try (laughs) (laughs) or make some of our own you know yeah yeah there's always that option too so do you ever make any meads? I got to ask you that. Well, meads or wines or anything's out of out of the 
yeah wild finds that you yeah. do absolutely uh uh yeah i made a uh well there's a place actually nearby um i think in my county dupage county that has they're they're called city bee savers and they're a service that goes around and collects beehives from places that you know don't want bees where they are and uh you know just makes a bunch of honey from them so i i've gotten a lot of raw honey from them um just excellent high quality stuff uh, made several gallons of meads several years ago, or two years ago, rather. Um, and one of the batches had uh, spruce tips, uh, a spruce tip me- uh, tea that I had made first. And then instead of like mixing uh, 100% water with honey, uh, it was with the spruce tip tea. Um, and I haven't cracked one of those open yet, but I did crack open some of the regular um, traditional mead, um, two-year aged, and it was pretty good. It was very, very dry. I used uh, champagne yeast, so um, those have a high alcohol tolerance, so they'll high just yield. keep converting. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I was going for. I was like, well, you know, I want more bang for my buck, uh, and, uh, you know, just kind of sacrifice a little bit of nuance and flavor that way. So but, when you um, do that though, you can always, cause I actually used to make a lot of booze. <laughs> so, um, did you ever think about resugaring? Um, no, uh, because I don't really use any, uh, chemical, um, finishers to like stop the fermentation process. So I'm always kind of worried that it was, it's going to restart. Oh, Okay, because I was going to say you could resugar or even resugar the yeast before, like to, because a lot of times it'll come back and reactivate and it'll just make a higher alcohol content, but it'll also eventually die off on its own and, uh, and leave you with a little bit sweeter taste if it can't consume all the sugars. So I've done like a second sugaring on some stuff and then it still died off after it produced. While it's still sitting in a gallon or after it's been separated? No, while it's still sitting in your carboy. Okay. That's how I've done it. I've also sugared at the last minute, like in the bottling process as well. To that's kind of, yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking is like dropping a teaspoon into each bottle or something. Yeah. And I've done that. And occasionally you get some that crack, you know, like they're still going and they'll break. But that's the risk you take, right? <laughs> it's all about oh, yeah, experimentation. Man. Yeah, that was in a different life, pretty much. That was a long time ago. <laughs> As a buddy of mine said, if you want to get some honey, you're going to have to F with some beehives. Oh, yeah? So did you uh, did you go and play with them in order to get the honey from them, or no? No, no, I was just thinking of it as a figure of speech. <laughs> like, if you, wanna, if you want some good stuff, you're going to yeah. take a little bit of a risk, you know? That's right. Crack some bottles. For sure. For sure. But uh, let's go back to <laughs> kind of jumping all over here and getting sidetracked, but it's cool. Um, so the ephemerals, um, what else is like really kind of popping up or popular this time of year that uh, is pretty good for people to go out and look for? Well, aside from plants, um, not necessarily uh, ephemeral, but we're going to sidestep here with the mushrooms, you know, pheasant backs. Those are something that I was always happy to come home from, come home with uh, on morel hunting trips if I couldn't get any of those. So 
pleasant backs are, you know, commonly identified with their uh, polypore undersurface, where it's just kind of like a bunch of pores um, hexagonally, and they can smell like cucumbers or watermelon rind. I think they're really wonderful. And they have this like great bird pattern on the back that looks like a pheasant. Which Feathers, is why yeah. It's specially named. Light and dark oh. contrast. Yeah, I think they're really tasty mushrooms. You know, the first time I ate them, um, did like a Greek marinade, uh, kind of shaved off the pores on the bottom, peeled off the top. So they were just kind of big white chunks and then uh, marinated them in olive oil and oregano and some other greek things i think it was like a greek salad dressing or something and then just fried them on a, a, a hot plate and it was phenomenal you know totally underrated yeah i've always found like unless you get them when they're really young to me sometimes just you know if you get them that are like the size of your fists or bigger to me it seems like they get tough and just recently i saw that once again alan Burgo, um, slices them super thin with a mandolin and i might have to try that because otherwise i can't i don't i don't like to eat them that much now i'm not saying that they don't have a good flavor or they're underrated because i think they are underrated for a mushroom but just when i get they get too tough it's kind of like to me it's pointless yeah they can be kind of difficult to work with if you don't have that creative mind that's it it's a really good idea slicing them thin i mean that's kind of a good approach for all mushrooms too and to make them more approachable for other people is just kind of slicing them thin or chopping them up a little bit i think a lot of people have texture aversions to food so that's my way yeah it's textured that's creative mushrooms for sure so many (laughs) and so but like uh the one thing i can get her to eat is like uh shiitake mushrooms if i if i take them or oyster mushrooms and i take them and i slice them thin or like the oysters i actually break up into like almost looks like shredded chicken um and then fry those up to where they actually get a little bit crispy and she's okay with the crispy texture but she's not okay with like the spongy mushroom type texture that goes along Mm -hmm. with most mushrooms that to her is like huge textured version doesn't want to eat them and she's like i don't hate mushrooms but i hate the texture so if you could figure out a way to incorporate it in food to where i don't have to taste it like that i don't mind the taste it's the texture that kills her so i always try and come up with ways to change that texture look bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and six one since that matters and What do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Yeah, that mandolin trick seems seems like it'll be the, the key. That's, that's cool. I like that. So I'm going to try the mandolin trick this year. I haven't tried it yet. But I just saw yeah. it recently, and I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Thanks, Alan. <laughs> so yeah, I'm going to use that. And then, um, like... One of my favorite things I do is like Italian hen of the woods and I take them and cook them dry 
in a pan until most of the moisture is out of them. Then I add olive oil and Italian seasoning and I cook them for like three hours. Just keep cooking them down until it's pretty much just concentrated mass of goodness. And then, uh, so she can't do the texture for that, but I'll even throw that on top of like a steak or on top of like pretty much anything. You could eat it on a piece of like crostini or something. Oh yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. And that's way off topic here, but we just got on mushrooms, but so. Oh yeah. No, that's right. That's right. (laughs) Back on topic though. Uh, Next, next ephemeral. Uh, There's a common one that everybody knows or that everybody, I feel like a lot of people that if you've kind of strayed off trail a little bit, you've seen, um, and you can commonly find it by riversides and it's the Virginia bluebells. So they, they, they come sprouting straight up out of the ground, like spinach leaves. They're like thick and hearty, like spinach. Um, and, and young in their life, they kind of have a purple tinge to them. Um, but the leaves turn green. Um, they actually end up getting pretty freaking bright green. Um, but the flowers are where they get their name. They start out uh, purple and then they kind of like turn pink and then they get blue they go bright blue and they're just beautiful blue flowers right by the river all sorts of water metaphors you can make um but they're delicious edible and um they taste kind of uh i mean you tasted one it was kind of spinachy i said it was kind of like oyster without the brine like it's just kind of i don't know meaty mealy yeah i mean it was decent I can't really categorize it into anything because it's not like it has like oxalates in it or anything like that to where it kind of gives it like a bite or a bitterness. It was just, to me, it tasted like a green. Yeah, it's just a very edible vegetable. So now my question, is the entire plant edible? Um, as far as I know, I'm not sure about the roots, so don't take me on that, but the flowers are edible, the leaves are edible, the stalk is edible. That's interesting, because I actually know of a spot, now that you say that, and what it looks like as the flower. I have a picture I took from a couple of years ago, I'll send it to you, because I'm pretty sure that that is that flower, and there was thousands of them. I mean, mm-hmm. it was insane. I was like, wow, that's really cool. What are those? And I never I never went any further than that. It was one of those things where, like, you take the picture and you forget about it until, like, oh, that yeah. was just mentioned right now. And now I'm like, holy cow, I know a spot that's got a ton of that. But, no, that's really cool. That And so, like, like the leaves were kind of purplish when, when – and you, and you were telling me, though, that the purplish is because it hasn't quite photosynthesized yet or – or the process of the photosynthesis hasn't fully happened. And that's why I think, yeah, I think it has a lot to do with that. Like exposure to sun. Yeah. It just has to like activate the, the compounds and it's the borophil flesh. <laughs> activate the borophil. Yeah. More like borophil. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my wife always says that to me. Anytime I start talking plants or mushrooms or anything with her, <laughs> she'll be <laughs> She'll uh, throw that in my face because apparently I'm rambling on and on forever about something that I just really learned and thought it was cool and wanted to share it, right? Yeah. But, uh, 
apparently not everybody's into that. Everybody doesn't no, no. nerd out about plants. Um, no, but I too am a person of culture like yourself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let's talk about the mighty Morcella, which is coming up here. Um, oh yeah. Let's talk about tips, tricks, and how to find them and myths associated with them because pretty much i think it summed it up the other day you posted something i think that was you that's it's like how to and how not to and it doesn't matter because you can find them anywhere but not everywhere but everywhere Um, yeah basically just get out there yeah like i never i always used to look for patches of elm trees and dead elms right and tulip poplars and all those things mm-hmm. are true yes mm-hmm. they you will find them there but you can find them in conifers you can find them you know everywhere beneath the pines you can find them in open fields i in my yard for the longest time used to find them i had an old walnut black walnut tree that was all dead and didn't want it to fall on my driveway onto, you know, cars parked in it. And so I cut it down and had the stump ground and not a year after, but two years after there was morels there for about six years or five years. Anyway, every year they would pop up and I'm not talking a lot of them, but I'd find like 10 of them. And obviously it would be before the first like mowing of the grass or in between mowings, because otherwise they'd get chopped down anyway. We'd never see them, but I would find at least five or 10 morels there every year. And that was kind of my indicator and they were yellows. So it was like, it was kind of later, but still it was the first sign of yellows because it was a sunny open area to where it's getting the most sunlight. The soil's the warmest and they would always pop up first, but it was a good indicator like, Hey, okay. I need to start going out and looking for all these yellows in some different spots. But with that being said, what, uh, what are kind of some of the things you look for? Oh, well, around here, um, being in the um, kind of Fox River Valley-ish area, um, definitely go for riversides. I find a lot of half-free morels, um, so they're not like the full body cap. They kind of hang loose at the bottom, but they still have all the same morel characteristics being um, completely clean and hollow on the inside and pits and all that. Um, I'll definitely find those um, frequently along creek beds, um, sloping hills. Uh, But I've, you know, to be honest, I've found them in all sorts of weird places. Um, The very first one that I found I was walking along a gravel trail and there was a whole, I mean, I was just surrounded by nettles, stinging nettles up to that. They were about as tall as my waist on both sides of the trail. And for some reason uh, I was, it almost seems mythical and I can't remember (laughs) what compelled me to like start running around in stinging nettles, but I started searching so i was thinking oh there's maybe there'll be a mushroom in here and i'm just sort of like looking around and sure enough there's one golden morel just sitting there and it's perfect it was perfect it was like the size of my palm oh Um, nice it was (laughs) it was perfectly round 
uh, I don't, it was, it was one of the most perfect specimens I've ever found. Um, and it was the only one there. It was just the weirdest thing. It was like, it was calling to me. The mushroom um, fairies pointed you yeah, in the direction. Like that sometimes, though, <laughs> the light know? was shining down from the mushroom gods upon the mushroom. But that's true. Yeah. It, you know, sometimes it just feels like destiny. I still almost disagree with you that that was the only one there, though. Uh, you, I mean, hey, you could be right. <laughs> I, I rummaged around. It's it was the only one there worth the sting. Okay, fair enough. But because I, I always couldn't search that much longer, and I always teach my nephew too. Like I took my nephew out and showed him, you know, how to find morels and all that kind of stuff. And I told him one of the first things I told him is stop. Where there's one, there is many. <laughs> oh yeah, and it's true. Absolutely. You could you could walk two feet to the left or right, stop and turn your head or put your head down towards the ground in a different direction, and you'll find more. It, it's crazy how that works. And like every time you think that you picked them all, you could stop and look around again and find more of them. I did that once last year. And it was kind of weird because if you remember, we had that real late hard frost. Oh, yeah. It, it was like a snow. Well, it's a frost. And then the next day we had like a snow. And uh, it kind of it seemed like it ruined everything. Like I had... On my apple trees, I had flowers on my apple trees. It killed the flowers, and there was, like, no fruit that year because yep. because of that. But, like, it kind of stunted the morels, too, or so we thought. I still ended up getting into them, but where I was in the timber, there was none. And, and there was other people I bumped into that were searching for them. And I happened to just go in this field that I'd never gone in before. And same thing, how, how you were just kind of compelled to go there. I was like, you know what? It's on my way back to my truck. I'm going to go there. And just something about it said, like, go into there. And I went into there, and it was young growth trees, fairly open. Um, it was just all, like, new forest and still grass growing in between in some spots. And sure enough, I was finding them, and I'm talking big yellows. Some of them, the size of my palm, and it was just like one. I'd snatch it up. Then there was another one. And as soon as I thought I grabbed them all in that area, I'd turn around and there was more. And I ended up walking out with like an entire game bag, which is like can hold an entire quarter of a deer meat. So like a whole hind quarter can fit in that bag to give you an idea of, I don't know how many quarts that is, but. A decent amount of morels. <laughs> what a wonderful feeling. Isn't it? Because I thought I was going to go home with just like four or five grays that I found <laughs> and that was it. And all of a sudden I stumbled into the yellow Mecca and it was like sun sunbeams shining down from the skies. The heavens had opened and uh, the mushroom gods had blessed me that day for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've even found uh, one of my favorite. There's there's a trail I like to visit frequently. That's just like a mile long, and um, that's I find a lot of like white leaks there, um, the white stemmed ramps, and uh, at the very end of it, there's it, like I don't know, three hundred feet of uh, just invasive honeysuckle shrubbery. So it's just, it's a hellscape of honeysuckle. I hate um, honeysuckle. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. I, dude, I hate it too. It's incredible. Um, 
but at the end of that trail right before um right when we stop and turn around and head back to the start i look over and there's a big morel just sitting there um right off the side of the trail again um in in this honeysuckle and with nothing else is associated like nobody says morels associate with honeysuckle but sure enough there it is yeah that's weird but i've also you know i found them at the base of oaks before too so where Definitely. i yep. like some of the same trees in fact that i've found some of my biggest my takis like i'm talking like eight ten pound hens that that's a healthy that's a healthy uh biome right there i've also found morels like one or two not many and they weren't big but yes i picked them anyway um <laughs> yeah <laughs> no you know i find them all in all the usual places too i just wanted to note the extra strange ones to show you that they can just you know you just gotta always keep your eyes open you just kind of have to be on alert for uh, two months straight yeah for they, sure. they might always be around the corner man yeah do you have a preference on morels whether it be a gray or uh black morels or or uh, yellows or um i pretty much exclusively find um yellows i have found i think three total uh grays um but that was out i think that was out west by the mississippi river that wasn't even really that wasn't even round here because some of this like i have one spot that i hit that i can find all three varieties i find that strange. i find that strange and it seems like they're like like you can go out and find grays and blacks and then the yellows are always later. It seems like. Yeah, that's me. true. And I, and I don't, I don't understand why that is or what it is about it, but that's normally how it goes. And then sometimes if it's kind of like a weird year and extra rain, they seem to like really just be popping. Sometimes I'll find them all in conjunction, but I always find like the blacks and the grays first and they're always in like, so the grays and blacks I always find in like mossy areas mm. in the timber. And it, I don't know if that's like an association that they have with like the moss or something. I'm not sure about that, but. Yeah, I mean, I know a little bit about the life cycle of a morel, but I'm not really sure about the direct associations. I mean, because I, in my opinion, they would be supposed associations just because of the evidence I've seen. <laughs> right. Them. You know, they'll grow anywhere they freaking can. Yeah, for sure. So what's your favorite way to cook the morel mushroom? Um... Gosh, you know, I'm kind of a simple guy. I like the, I like a good mushroom um, and like foraged herb omelet. So just an omelet, yeah? Yeah, just saute them up and then put them in an omelet. Um, I, gosh, you know, I will say that um, probably my, one of my favorite, uh, favorite times that I, I really tasted the morel and it like gave me goosebumps was I, was on a backpacking trip and uh with my wife and we found 
um, a bunch of morels that were probably as long as my hand. So like solid six inch, eight inch morels. Um, and uh, I had brought, I had planned to make a risotto. Um, so I brought all, I brought a fixed, brought broth, the risotto. And so we found some field garlic and I had kind of counted on finding this morel mushrooms. And, uh, yep, set up a camp stove and sauteed them up and then did the slow fry or the slow cook risotto. And um, that was pretty, pretty freaking phenomenal. Um, so that's got to be pretty closely rated, but I'm not always willing to do that kind of work. <laughs> so as far as simplicity, like, you know, going through the whole category of different ways to rate a thing, I'm going to go with omelet. Yeah. Really? So, like, I'll even go simpler than that. And pan-fried in butter or, like, just lightly salted, maybe a little pepper in the butter, get, like, a nice crust on the outside of it. Mm -hmm. Or even bread it up. That's, like, my most simplest way to do it. But delicious. Look forward to it every year. That happens, like, the first batch I find. You know, I have not um, fried morels. I've not like battered and fried them. And that's, I'm not even talking batter them. Just straight up fry them in the butter, like a saute, but go to where it's going to crisp it. Yeah. But you can also bread it. And if you bread it like a real light breading, and like for me, I can't eat it anymore. But for all the other folk out there that can, that don't have gluten allergy, um, I see. Shore Lunch makes a Cajun Shore Lunch, and it's like a fish batter. But just take it and batter it in that. Don't do any like breading or uh, any egg wash or anything like that. Just kind of lightly coat it in that and throw it in the pan. Like get an entire stick of butter going in the pan, nice and hot, and throw those in. And man, I will tell you what, those are like gold. It's wonderful. Does it even even taste like morels after that? (laughs) Yes, it does. The morel flavor still shines through. Yeah. Yeah, it it shines through. You can taste it, and it's still delicious. Let's put it this way. I've got a friend that pretty much only eats, like, hamburgers and hot dogs and plain tacos. I'm talking, like, ground beef tacos. And uh, he still eats them because they're that good. Yeah. (laughs) So... That'll that'll tell you something a little bit there, but um, yeah. So looking forward to that. You got any other? Uh, pretty much, pretty much look anywhere and everywhere. Keep your eyes peeled, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, I I find a lot of success. You know, to 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 take this more seriously, I do find a lot of success all along riversides, um, sloping hills. You know, I think that uh, the whatever side the hill that the sun rises on is indeed uh you know a start a good starting place um but yeah river river river's edge is i think kind of a place where most people kind of don't search for already um and i I, that's where i find a lot of my mushrooms creek banks another good spot um so the kind of weird though but the got to talk about the ramps again one more time so terrain for the ramps is also rolling hills with sides that are getting sun as well right 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you could see that today very clearly when you walk through and see the different kind of like elevations and where different places got sunlight and which didn't. And it was like super obvious by where the where the ramps were really stretching out and just drinking it up. For sure. Yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Uh, it was a good time uh, walking around and learning some stuff with you and uh, definitely tasting that uh, tooth wart. That's what it's called, right? Yeah, cut leaf. Cut leaf, cut leaf tooth, wart. tooth wart. Yep. So, yeah, definitely going to have to try and figure something out with that. Um, it's been good talking to you, Michael. Uh, before we go, let's kind of talk about maybe some of your classes coming up and what people can look forward to and uh, where they can find you once again to see your cool content and what you're doing and maybe get in touch with you. Yeah, definitely. Um, I post updates uh, semi-regularly on my Instagram. I'm pretty active on my stories. I try to keep that pretty hot with the memes. And uh, um, coming up should should be season two of Frog Cam. Got that, <laughs> got that super niche frog content coming for you folks where I do weird videos of frogs in a pond um, because... I like looking at frogs and other people do too. Um, so that's it um, on Instagram, edible underscore ed, uh, Illinois. Um, got do have classes coming up. I don't have them uh, scheduled on my website, but um, once uh, I'm, I'm kind of in a moving situation right now. So once things settle down in like literally two weeks, uh, I should be able to really figure out um some stuff that I can do for May and June. Um, but uh, yeah, my website is edibleillinois.com. Um, I'm definitely going to be doing some wild soda classes this year um, to uh, show how many different like cool beverages you can make from all the wildflowers that we have going on this summer. Um, yeah, I'm going to figure out some cool stuff to do. So yeah, thanks. Sounds it's been awesome talking to you yeah. too. Um, it was awesome to have you for a walk. You know, I love being able to talk to plant, talk plants with other people. So thanks for listening. <laughs> Absolutely, man. It's been good. And uh, I appreciate you coming on for sure. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the Publicly Challenged podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. And if you did, please subscribe on whatever platform it is you're listening to. Also, if you could leave a review, that would help us out. And you can check us out on Instagram or at publiclychallenge.com. And once again, thank you so much for listening to the show. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience, brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts, every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.